ransomware gangs embracing the limelight with tell-all interviews, and securing IoT devices. Do you really know what's on your network? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Ransomware-wielding attackers have been in the limelight lately, not just for hitting Acer, Dassault, Falcon and celebrity law firms, but also for granting tell-all interviews. To give us more insight into the unusual state of affairs, I'm joined by Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor of Data Breach Today in Europe. Good to see you, Matt, as always. So it appears that multiple ransomware gangs have been giving interviews of late. Now, given that successful criminals have historically been ones that couldn't get identified or caught, what seems to be the impetus? So that's the million dollar question. Why would a criminal knowingly grant insights and details into how they're running their criminal enterprises? I think when it comes to ransomware gangs, one of the obvious explanations is a lot of them are looking for affiliates. And there have been some recently published and conducted interviews with operators from Lockbit, Mount Locker, and also Revol, which is known as Soto no Kibi, and is probably one of the most notorious operations out there. But all these operations rely on affiliates. So they're ransomware as a service operations, where the operator will provide a piece of crypto locking malware to an affiliate the affiliate will infect a victim. When the victim pays, it goes back to the operator and the operator keeps a pre-agreed cut of the proceeds before giving the rest to an affiliate. So this model has been behind the surge in successful ransomware attacks and also the earning power of ransomware gangs. You have these kind of two specialists. One does the code, one does the hacking and infecting. So that's been really, really successful. But these affiliates have a choice. They can work with different operations. So probably we're seeing some of these interviews because these various operators are trying to burnish their image and they're trying to look like the really big player that will naturally attract anyone who wants to maximize their chance of getting the maximum possible. Yeah, it is quite an amusing thought, really, criminals embracing this tabloid-esque approach of the tell-all interview. But more to the point, what are some of the top takeaways from ransomware operators telling all or claiming to? Well, to hear the ransomware operators tell it, they're just normal individuals who just happen to have day jobs and probably don't share a lot of details about how they steal from others. But if you want to look from a more defensive standpoint, it is interesting to see what they're saying about target selection and who they try to target. And it's nothing revolutionary here. It's kind of just reinforcing everything that we knew. For example, they increasingly prefer large victims. And although that takes a little bit more effort maybe to take down a larger victim, a larger victim can pay a lot more. So as the Mount Locker operator said, if they hit a large multi-billion dollar company, they can pay over $10 million in a ransom. That's a pretty sweet payday if you are an attacker of any stripe. Another thing is we've seen this huge growth in naming and shaming via data leak sites. So a lot of times now attackers will steal data before the crypto lock systems. They'll name and shame the victim and then start to leak the data. All of this is to increase the pressure on victims to pay. It's a standard extortion tactic. And we, we know that obviously, but it's just interesting to see that this is so widely practiced now, but so widely practiced that a lot of ransomware gangs are looking for new angles, new edges. So the Ryuk 
operator said that they love to hit cyber insurers because then they can work through the list of cyber insurance holders and have a pretty good chance of seeing a payday because their assertion is that for companies that have cyber insurance, getting the ransom paid is virtually assured. That's something that all of the gangs said. Now, these are claims. These haven't been validated. It's not even clear that Ryuk has ever hit a cyber insurance firm. This could just be bluster, but it is interesting to see them sort of have their hit list, wish list, if you will, of entities that they would prefer to be hitting. Another one is hospitals. The Lockbit operator claims to never hit the healthcare sector, but then also shares the insight that hospitals will pay 80% to 90% of the time. So possibly there's a little bit of an image being projected that may not be true from a criminal standpoint in terms of thieves honoring their supposed promises. So Matt, what do you think? Do the insights shared provide any clues to the, the big real problem of how governments and law enforcement agencies might better disrupt ransomware? So there was a great phrase that was in circulation about 10 years ago, for example, at the 2012 RSA conference, when the anonymous collective was hitting organizations left and right. Now, this was under the guise of hacktivism, but you still saw some organizations like Sony suffer, in Sony's case, more than a dozen breaches. Data was leaked. It wasn't pretty. And uh, so Grady Summers, then he was uh, Mandian's vice president of the cloud security group, has this wonderful phrase, the anonymous attacks hold up a mirror to our neglect. Basically, the industry needs to do better. They need to make their systems harder to hack. Fast forward nearly a decade, and what do we see? The state of systems still isn't great. Ransomware attackers still have a lot of options to choose from. Security experts say that if it's too hard to get into one target, they'll move to the next one. So if you're a defender, you want to be that too hard to get into so that they go to the next one. But in the bigger picture, you have individuals operating from certain regions where Arguably, they don't have a lot of outlet for their tech skills. And Katie Musaurus, who I've interviewed previously, she's a bug bounty guru. She's the CTO of Luda Security. She has a wonderful phrase. She issued this via Twitter. Global inequitable access to a path to prosperity leads to crime. And on the internet, this crime is scalable. So you have these really tech savvy individuals who would love to have a high paying IT job, but don't have that opportunity. Now, obviously they've made a few ethical and moral choices along the way, ended up in a life of crime, but they are using these tech skills not for good. And especially for attackers in Russia, you often hear a very patriotic sort of a bent. They're not hitting Russian. They're not hitting anyone in that neighborhood. And so long as they don't, in at least some circles, there's acceptance of that. They're stealing from the West. And that's very difficult to counter if we don't improve the state of our security. So I think these interviews and criminals' willingness to talk openly about certain aspects of their criminal operations show that they really just don't think there's anything that's going to stop them anytime soon. Fascinating, Matt. The criminals just don't stop innovating, do they? Unfortunately, never. And ransomware has given them a really great platform, if you will, for innovating and getting a payday as a result. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. By 2020, it's estimated that there'll be more than 21 billion IoT devices worldwide. So how do we go about protecting them? Here's ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor of Security and Technology, with some timely insight. 
Do you know all of the IoT devices on your network? Gartner analyst Tim Zimmerman says a lot of organizations do not. And with long-term vulnerabilities such as Bluekeep and Ripple 20 lurking within connected devices, inattentive management could have consequences. Zimmerman spoke on Wednesday as part of Gartner's Virtual Security and Risk Management Summit for Asia-Pacific. He imparted advice for what enterprises can do to safely deploy IoT and how that is changing traditional networks. Attacks, he says, are only going to get worse, and it's the usual suspects. Weak passwords, no passwords, and weak authentication on devices. But the path forward is to create an IoT security policy for the governance team. The policy should include procedures for safely adding new devices to the network. Zimmerman recommends that organizations determine if their current IoT strategy allows them to discover and classify all the IoT devices they already have. Here's Tim Zimmerman. You can't manage or control what you don't know exists. Don't be the organization that finds out about the device after a breach. Be proactive. Zimmerman says devices should be placed in risk categories such as corporate devices, guest devices, known devices that are out of policy, and untrusted ones. Another recommendation is segmentation, such as putting security cameras in one isolated segment and building automation controls into another. Zimmerman says devices in various segments shouldn't be able to see one another. Also, all new devices should be tested to monitor their behavior before they're put into production. Zimmerman says this should be done for a couple of weeks in a container, but he says he's spoken to many users who say they've been pressured by the line of business to have devices go into production in as little as a day. But he says having a governance policy in place can codify the risks if someone decides to make that decision. Overall though, IoT governance is still a relatively new area. Here's Zimmerman again. We're starting to see that the, there's some evidence or essence of governance, but it's very limited. It's an obvious gap. We also see that skill sets and capabilities are an issue. We need to do things now to train our you know, sources so that our resources so that they can address the problems that we're going to see. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, remote working seems to have magnified insider threat opportunities, whether unintentional, malicious, or even well-meaning. Dr. Margaret Cunningham, Principal Research Scientist for Human Behavior at Forcepoint X Labs, recently shared some interesting research with Nick Holland, our Director of Banking and Payments, highlighting the growth in risky remote work behaviors. So as this new way of working looks as if it's here to stay, what should security professionals be thinking about over the next 12 months? What I think about a lot is where we often focus in security is that end period of when something leaves, the information left, somebody broke something, somebody purposely damaged something, whatever it is, we're focused at that very last moment in time. What is becoming fairly obvious is that we need to be paying attention much earlier because the richest information about where all of your things live, what your people are doing comes before that moment. I'm a huge advocate for building an understanding of behavior through analytics, but not just focusing on the bad part. We really do need to have that holistic understanding. Mm -hmm. We do know that certain behaviors are protective. There are behaviors that some people are doing that are saving your company and you don't know about it because you're not looking. As we start to realize the need for that rich picture, I think that the human end and the behavioral analytics strategy will become a little bit more prevalent, especially for those organizations who plan on maintaining the remote workforce or flexible workforce. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Music